This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at Okad University. After a short absence, we are back with a new episode on AODA, which stands for Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. In this episode of Quantization, we are pleased to have Richard Hunt in conversation with David Lepofsky. Richard is the host of this episode. Hi, my name is Richard Hunt. Richard Hunt is a designer and assistant professor in the Department of Design at OCAD University. He has worked in the design field for over 30 years, specializing in typographical practices. He presented Typography, a Matter of Life and Death at the TypeCon in 2014, looking at the potential of current typographic technologies to optimize legibility in high-stake medical situations. His practice focuses on typography for architecture applications and communication design. Richard's research interests include the functionality of typography in health contexts and issues of legibility and readability in traditional and new media in both single-user and environmental contexts. He has been involved in the SafeFund project alongside the University Health Network and OCAD University. This is Season 1, called Signal, Episode 3, AODA. My name is Richard Hunt. In this episode of Quantization, we are talking to Toronto lawyer and disability activist David Lepofsky. Since being admitted to the Ontario Bar in 1981, David has practiced law in the Ontario Public Service in the areas of constitutional, civil, administrative, and most recently, criminal law. He's written a law book and many articles on legal subjects. He was invested as a member of the Order of Canada in 1995 and was awarded the Order of Ontario in 2007 for his, as it says, work on behalf of people with disabilities in Ontario, which helped lead to the Ontarians with Disabilities Act of 2001 and the AODA, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, 2005. This June, he was awarded an honorary doctorate by the Law Society of Upper Canada. David is also the chair of the AODA Alliance, a disability consumer advocacy group that works with the disability community and the government to support the full and effective implementation of AODA accessibility standards in Ontario. Welcome, David. Great to be here. So, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act 
is accessibility legislation that was passed in Ontario by the McGuinty government in 2005, with the promise of the province reaching full accessibility by 2025. Here we are, it's 2016. How's that process going? Well, there's bad news, and then there's good news, and then there's bad news, and <laughs> then there's good news. Let me start with the first bad news. We're not on schedule. We are behind schedule, and we're falling behind schedule for reaching full accessibility by 2025. Now, let me get to the good news. The good news is the law itself that we fought for from 2000, uh, pardon me, 1994 to 2005, it's a good law. It's got the right bones to it. We sure don't want it weakened in any way. Uh, and the premiers promised us that they would never do that. Um, but um, And when the government got started on implementing it back in 2005 through to about 2011, um, they did a not bad job. They got right to work. They picked the important areas to start working in. They rolled up their sleeves. They engaged the business community, disability community, the public sector in coming up with the first round of accessibility standards. And while they don't cover everything we need, they were certainly um, an important and helpful start. Then the next bad news. The next bad news is that since 2011, summertime, the government has just absolutely kind of fallen apart on this issue. They have uh, just ground down to a snail's pace. They are moving unacceptably slowly on developing new accessibility standards. They are doing a paltry and completely ineffective job of, effect of meeting their promise to effectively enforce the the rules they have passed on accessibility, and they don't have a plan to get us from here to 2025. They got eight and a half years to la left to get us on schedule and to get us to that destination, which the, the legislation requires the government to lead us to. Um, then the good news. The good news is there is a roadmap. Um, part of it was mapped out by uh, two independent reviews that the government was required to appoint to take our temperature and say, how are we doing and what do we need to do? And part of it's been mapped out by uh, the membership and supporters of our coalition, which we've put a, a blueprint forward to the government on, on how to get back on track. We, we criticize them when they do poorly. We commend them when they do well. But we always come forward with constructive ways of doing better. So I go back to where I started. The bad news is we're not on schedule. We've made some progress, but nowhere near the progress we need to make. And we're losing opportunities. We're way behind the United States on accessibility on a number of fronts, whether it's education, public transportation, all sorts of uh, technology, a whole wide range of areas. We are just behind schedule, and it, it works to the disadvantage of all Ontarians. So, so what's the problem? Is it is it lack of will? Is it uh, you know? Is it uh, budgetary problems? Well, it's not budget. It's not budget. The fact is, in terms of effective enforcement, the government has an office, the Accessibility Directorate, which has the power to enforce. They've been given a budget to enforce, and through our Freedom of Information applications, we've revealed that every single year since two thousand and five, they've been under budget. Um, they're not getting the political leadership that they need. Um, and, you know, when this law passed in 2005, I was there. I had the privilege of leading the, uh, the pre predecessor to the AODA alliance. It's the, uh, it was called the Ontarians with Disabilities Act Committee. We campaigned for 10 years for this law from 94 to 2005. And we lobbied one candidate at a time, one MPP at a time. We're nonpartisan, have been to this day. And we built some real momentum. We and our supporters around the province built some real exciting momentum. So that the day the legislation passed in 2005, I was there at, at Queen's Park. Two amazing things happened. The first is the law passed unanimously. 
And the members of the legislature, all of them, rose in unison to applaud its passage. Now, that does not happen at Queen's Park very often. Sure. Those folks can't even agree on what time of day it is um, without getting into a fight with each other. But here they, they agreed on the outcome and they applauded it. Um, but then right after the law passed, a press conference was held at Queen's Park, convened by the government, and there were three people speaking in support of this law. One was the minister who brought it in, Dr. Marie Butriani. She's now teaching over Ireson. She was speaking from the government's perspective, hardly surprising that she'd endorse her own law, but <laughs> kudos to her because she led a really good process. Yeah. The second was me from a disability perspective, and the third was a representative of the Retail Council of Canada. So in that building at Queen's Park, we had at the same time a unanimity of support from liberal conservative NDP, government, disability community, and business. Again, that doesn't happen very often. And so when they got to work, there was a real sense of mission. It's really fallen off the rails, and I think for a couple of reasons. One of which is there's been a significant uh, turnover at Queen's Park. Uh, many of the members of the legislature who were there with us when we were fighting for this law and who kept trying to put it on the agenda of, uh, of the government of the day have left politics. And they've been replaced by people who are good people, but they're people for whom this is past history. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not a cause that they had any uh, investment in. And the second thing is the government is just not showing the leadership we need. And that's been the view of two independent reviews that the government appointed. They appointed it. They picked the reviewer. Um, they picked people that were respectable. And they said that this that the problem is that the government, you know, celebrated the passage of the law. But since then, have just kind of gone back to business as usual. And, and I'll add that it's kind of letting bureaucracy supersede action. Uh -huh. So let me give you an example. We tried for since really around the year 2010, 2011, to get the government to develop um, new accessibility standards. And two of the ones we said that were really important were one to address barriers in healthcare and the others to address barriers in our education system. Now, what could be more important than healthcare and education? Healthcare so you can survive and education so you can learn, uh, grow, get a job and succeed in society. They're both really important and both heavily publicly funded or overwhelmingly uh, publicly funded. So uh, the government's uh, the, the batter at the plate that's got to answer for them. Uh, for education, we still can't get an answer. They still haven't agreed whether they will do an education accessibility standard. We are stuck laboring under an accessibility law uh, or probably under special education regulations and, and legislation that were passed in 1980, 36 years ago. It's antiquated legislation. It's outdated. I can tell you that I also serve as the volunteer chair of the Special Education Advisory Committee of the Toronto District School Board, the largest school board in Canada. We have 46,000 uh, kids with special education needs. And I can tell you, we are way behind. It's not just a question of funding. We have 334,000 students with special education needs in publicly funded schools across Ontario. That's a third of a million. And our education system was not designed uh, to meet their needs. They're kind of an afterthought or trying to fit into a system that wasn't there uh, with them in mind. We have uh, uh, 550 schools in Toronto, buildings, schoolhouses. Only 85 of them are accessible, physically accessible. That's how out of date we are. We've got endorsements for an education accessibility standard from the major organizations who represent many of those who teach in the front lines. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association, and 
the Ontario uh, Confederation of University Faculty Associations. All these folks are agreeing with us. We need an education accessibility standard. Six years later, we can't get the government to say yes. They don't say no, they just don't say. This is still mired in internal study or bureaucracy. Now let me turn to healthcare. We have a healthcare system full of barriers. Nobody could dispute that. So what's the government done? They, they didn't answer until a year and a half ago when the uh, minister responsible for this legislation, uh, Brad Duguid at, at that time, to his credit, finally announced, yes, we're going to do an educa- uh, uh, me, a healthcare accessibility standard. But they haven't taken the next step needed to get started on it. They're required by law to appoint a committee. It's called a Standards Development Committee with disability representatives, healthcare representatives to come up with ideas of what the standard uh, could do. They haven't appointed a, a year and a half later. They haven't even appointed the committee to start get, getting started on work. What has the government done? Get a load of this. This is bureaucracy upon bureaucracy. And none of this is mandated in the legislation. First, the government decided to do a pre-pre-consultation. That's our name. They decided to hire KPMG, a private consulting firm. I don't know what they know about disability and healthcare. I just don't know. To go out and consult on what barriers might be addressed. But guess who they talked to? They talked to the healthcare sector, but not people with disabilities. Mm. Okay, so they then used public money and that gobbled up who knows how much time. And then after that was done, the government is now holding the pre-pre-consultation is, is, going, is over. Now they're doing a pre-consultation. So the, the civil servants are now asking us, now that KPMG has talked to us, what do you say the barriers are? Now, all of this before they appoint the Standards Development Committee, which under law is responsible for asking us, what barriers do you face? So when you ask me, why are we behind schedule? That, that anecdote tells you everything. They've agreed we need action. But this is how things are getting mired in unnecessary bureaucracy. I mean, thank God, I'll just wrap up your long answer to your question with this. Thank God the uh, government didn't do these pre-pre-consultations and pre-consultations back in 2005, or we wouldn't have gotten anything on the books by now. Yeah, I, I see the problem there. But what, what's at the root of the problem? I mean, it's like, how could we fix this problem? How can we fix this problem? It's, it's, it's actually easy to fix. The first step is something that the uh, 2014 independent review by former U of T law dean, uh, Mayo Moran, uh, directed should be done. She said the premier needs to show leadership on this file. So that's the first thing. Right. And I'm not saying premier wins against it, but she needs to uh, actually um, grab this file and say, look, this thing's off the rails. We've got to get it going. Now, recently she appointed a new minister, Tracy McCharles, gave her responsibility for this. She's about the, I don't know, fifth or sixth minister we've dealt with in, in 10 years. I'd have to do the count. Um, but um, we're rolling up our sleeves to see what we can do with her. But the second thing the premier has to do is something she promised to do but has not done. What we've found is this. We've gotten great promises from the government over the years both under Dalton McGinty and then under Kathleen Wynne, of what they would do. When elections come along, we write them all the parties, because we're nonpartisan, we say, here's what we need you to do. And they've written great letters with great commitments. But then we find out after the election's over, uh, too often they don't do it. So what we've later, from our own research investigation, found out is this. After each election, the premier writes what are called mandate letters to each ministry minister and says, here are your priorities. And are the commitments that the government has made to us in elections too often don't end up in those mandate letters. To her credit, after the 2014 election, Premier Wynne finally actually made mandate letters public. 
uh, first time in Ontario. And that's a great move. Right. We read them all. They're not exciting, but we read them all. And you go to our website, which is aodaalliance.org, you'll see we posted an analysis and found out that the significant majority of promises they made to us aren't in those letters. In the 2014 election, we anticipated this problem. We asked the premier and all party leaders, if you're elected, will you direct your ministers to keep your election promises to us and your duties on accessibility? And she said, yes, I would. But then when she wrote her mandate letter, she didn't do it. So guess what? When you don't tell the ministers this, these are priorities, they don't become priorities. Prior minister responsible for this act was a guy named Brad Duguid from 2014 up until a couple of months ago. She, we, we said, hey, will you, Premier, will you direct him to keep the commitments the government's made on effectively enforcing this law? His mandate letter didn't say a word about enforcing this law. And guess what? Brad Duguid cut enforcement, which was already low, by over a third. So when the, the answer to your question, the first thing we need is we really need that leadership. And, and the second thing is we need the uh, premier to uh, keep her word in the 2014 election of actually directing her ministers to keep the government's commitments to us. Clearly, Premier Wynne's a politician. Has she reacted to this, um, to, to the, uh, the challenge, to a challenge uh, that her, her mandate letters are not um, including the material she's promised? Well, she, we haven't gotten the action we need. No. I mean, the bottom line, the bottom line thing is, uh, is we haven't got the action we need. So let me tell you what we're doing about it because we, we don't just complain. We act. So we do two things, one of which is obviously we come forward to the government as a nonpartisan coalition. We're all volunteers, including me. And we, we uh, I've retired from the Ontario Public Service uh, and I'm teaching part-time at the Osgoode Hall Law School as a visiting professor. Um, uh, and um, in the time I have uh, outside of that, uh, I and our supporters around the province, we are ramping up pressure to come forward with practical ideas for the government and meeting with ministers and deputy ministers and trying to do what we can do. But the other thing we are doing is that we are also going out there to the public. And we launched a campaign last February, which um, has recently gotten um, um, great media attention. Uh, which is, we, we, we call it our Picture Our Barriers campaign. And what we're encouraging people to do, and anybody listening to this podcast, please join in. Uh, we're encouraging people to take their smartphones and take pictures of barriers in our community. Uh, they can be physical barriers. They can be technological barriers. They can be any kind of barrier. It doesn't have to be just for people with physical disabilities because we cover all disabilities. And we encourage people to tweet these. But we've done, we're suggesting a couple of things to make it easier, one of which is we have a hashtag. It's number sign and then AODA fail. Okay. These are tweets are pictures of AODA fails. That's why we call it picture our barriers. Um, and we encourage people to also put words in the tweet to describe these tweets because people like me are totally blind. We want to know what the barriers are too. But the other thing we're doing is we're tweeting them or retweeting them to politicians to put the heat on them and to the media. So if, if people are listening to this, if you're on, on, on Twitter, it'd be great if you followed us. It's at AODA Alliance, at AODA Alliance. But when, if you go to search on the hashtag AODA fail, if, if you can add your own tweets, that'd be great. But even if you can't, please just retweet the ones you see there. If you see a tweet that says you know, from us or from anyone to Kathleen Wynne or Patrick Brown or Andrea Horwath or any of their members, so telling them about the barriers we face. If you just click retweet, you don't have to go out and 
take pictures of anything if you don't have the time. Just click retweet. You're adding your voice to ours. You're showing that this is a, a movement that you agree with. And that would really help. If you want tips on how to do that, we got resources on our website. We have an action kit. We have all the MPPs, Twitter handles. Just go to the following link. And if you have show notes, it'd be great if you tied a link to it. It's www.aodaalliance.org slash 2016. So aodaalliance.org slash 2016. And if you go there, you'll see all the resources you need to be make even a, like a one-page cheat notes on if you don't want to read all the other stuff this in, in a look at it in 30 seconds you'll know what to do it's been really cool um, and really helpful and the Toronto Star read a great article describing some of the more glaring barriers that we've we've brought to public attention I think that sounds great because yeah I think if you bring uh, public attention I mean we're, we're talking about uh, politicians here and I I imagine they just it's it's not high enough in mind for them to to be concerned with it. That that's what it sounds like and the story of and, this. And is. what's bizarre about that is that they should be because we are the minority of everyone. Everybody either has a disability now that's one point eight million Ontarians, or will get one later because they're going to get older hopefully. And as you get older, you get disabilities. Let's talk about an education accessibility standard just for a moment. How could any politician be against this? We have. I can take the numbers I gave you before. I'm going to put them in perspective. In Ontario publicly funded schools, that's Catholic boards and, and public boards, there are 2 million students. 334,000 are known as students with special education needs. So one out of every six students in any publicly funded school has special education needs. And we are embarrassingly behind the United States. Speaking of Americans, and not trying to compare, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 is a U.S. labor law that prohibits unjustified discrimination based on disabilities in employment, transportation, public accommodation, communication, and governmental activities. The ADA also establishes requirements for telecommunication services. Under Title III of the ADA, all new construction, modification, or alteration after the effective date of the ADA must be fully compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act accessibility guidelines. The 2010 ADA Standards for Accessibility Design is 280 pages guideline which set minimum requirements for newly designed and constructed all altered state and local government facilities, public accommodation, and commercial facilities to be readily accessible and to be used by individuals with disabilities. Title III also has application to existing facilities. One of the definitions of discrimination under Title III of the ADA is a failure to remove architectural barriers in existing facilities. President George W. Bush signed the ADA Amendment Act of 2008 into law on September 25th of the same year. We get the feedback from the frustration that parents face. We don't even have a standard for what a new school should look like to ensure it's accessible. Mm-hmm. Like if, if a, a school board sometimes has to tear down an old building and build a new one or build an addition, we got the out-of-date building code and the incomplete building code on accessibility, but we don't have a requirement for schools. 
Um, so each school board has to reinvent the wheel, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Now, waiting for provincial action, I'm, I'm proud that the Toronto District School Board Special Education Advisory Committee, which I have the privilege of serving as chair, we as volunteers have put forward an agenda for change, and we're pressing the Toronto District School Board to adopt it in, in areas like built environment and digital accessibility. But we need provincial leadership on this. This is what the province should do. They lead on everything else in education. They set the curriculum. They set the class size. They set all sorts of other things that the province has to follow. They they set the terms for um, all sorts of things the school board. But this one, uh, they're, they're far... Uh, less willing to lead and leave it to parents to have to fight these barriers one-off against school boards, and it's just not fair. Right, really. Um, another question I have is, do you think there's, I mean, I, I don't want to sound cynical here, but is there resistance from the, basically to accessibility, uh, enforcement of accessibility standards from the uh, the the business side of, uh, of things? Can I tell you something? Here's, I, I'm going to tell you about all the mythology. Okay, and your question, which is a totally fair one, uh, sort of brings us to myths versus reality on, uh, to counterintuitive reality. Number one, the myth is business would be lagging behind, but government is the big leader. And in fact, the Ontario government says, we're going to lead by example, but unfortunately, too often, they lead by a poor example. We found that there are instances where businesses are ahead of government. When it came to negotiating terms for um, internet uh, and website accessibility, we found that uh, the corporate leaders in information technology were far ahead of the government leaders on information technology uh, in Ontario. The second thing, the second mythology is you've got to let government do everything first because they need uh, and, and business needs um, more time. The fact of the matter is there are times when government needs more time and businesses need less. I, I've heard from people who are IT consultants on accessibility, that it's way easier to get a small business uh, or medium-sized business to change their web practices on accessibility than a huge organization like a government, where uh, government will have a gazillion web pages managed by a whole bunch of different people, but a bit smaller business may just have it all managed by a couple of people, and can they're, they're, it's, it's quicker to retrofit, and it's quicker to get them doing the right thing uh, for things that they for a go, on a go-forward basis. So the third mythology is that we folks with disabilities, we love to regulate the heck out of everybody, and businesses going to government saying, please don't regulate us, please don't regulate us. And the poor government's in the middle, getting pressure from both sides, what do they do? We've actually heard, and the independent review of the Disabilities Act by Mayo Moran has heard, that business wants standards too. They want to know what they got to do. They don't want to have to hire consultants. So government... When it drops the ball, lets down us in the business sector. I'll give you a quick illustration. So to its credit, in a, a accessibility standard was passed just as the government was hitting its sort of uh, paralysis mode. It was passed at the end of 2012. The government set requirements for accessibility in some public spaces. And one of the things they said is, like, if you've got a public service area in a building, a new one, you've got to have uh, at least one accessible counter height. That's great. But it doesn't tell you what the height is. <laughs> so, and the government's position was, oh, I guess, well, let's leave it to businesses. We don't want to be too regulatory and too prescriptive. They won't like that. Well, businesses say, just tell us how high, how high to make the counter. Why should the government dump on businesses the obligation to go hire, each hire a, con- a consultant to reinvent the wheel? The government in that standard said to municipalities, you know, if you create a new playground, 
at including it accessibility features for kids with disabilities. But they don't say what they are. So then every municipality is stuck having to reinvent the same wheel and uh, run the risk of getting it wrong. Uh-huh. So there are areas where the need to be more prescriptive and then to enforce the law are ones that we in business and other obligated sectors will agree on and the government's just letting us all down. Let me give you the last counterintuitive or, uh, or a myth, I should say, versus reality. The mythology is old buildings, well, they aren't that accessible, but new buildings, now we know better and we get it right. Well, in the recent Toronto Star article, we pointed out three new buildings built with public money that have really unacceptable accessibility barriers that should have been caught. I can describe them really fast. Number one, these sure. Brand new Women's College Hospital on the 10th of June, the Premier and the Prime Minister of Canada, big, you know, photo op, ribbon cutting to open it. Well, what was behind them was a hospital using, built with our money with, like, some accessibility features, and that's always good, uh, but it's expected, but a number of significant accessibility problems. I went on the main floor to go to the bathroom, and they have Braille signage, and it has a room number. Doesn't say bathroom, doesn't say men's. <laughs> it's a room number. And then there's a tactile graphic, supposedly, of a male symbol. Now, I got some decent education, and I've put my hand on I have no idea what it is. And I challenge anyone who designed it to figure that one out. They, many hospitals have an automatic door that opens as you approach, which makes sense. These are people coming who are sick, who are injured, um, who are family, they're older people, they're coming for health care. Well, the Women's College Hospital, there's you got to wave your hand in front of a, a post at the side, which blind folks like me won't know is there or won't be able to easily find. And people with motor disabilities won't be able to do. So they got to haul the door open. Mm. When you get inside, the walking route from the front door to the main elevator doesn't have appropriate wayfinding for a blind person to find it. Let me give you a last example. from This is a brand new hospital. I can give you a ton more examples, but this is a brand new hospital. So the last example from the hospital is... They have accessible parking in the parking lot, and they've taken some steps commendably to ensure that people with disabilities can park there. But when you come in the building and you want to pay for your parking, there's an electronic kiosk built into the wall where the screen is at standing height. So a person in a wheelchair can't operate it. That, by the way, violates the um, accessibility standards that require accessibility features in electronic kiosks. The government, and of course, the government aren't enforcing it, much less against you know, their own broader public sector in an effective way. It's outrageous. Second building, Ryerson has a new student learning center right in the core of downtown Toronto. Um, lovely building. They have these things called hangout stairs. I didn't know the term of this before I got, got into this issue, was, uh, this part of this issue. But what it is, is it's like a socializing area where there are kind of steps, a flight of stairs, and then there's like steps that you can sit on to chat. So it's a socializing area that might as well have a sign saying people with mobility disabilities need not socialize here. Mm. If you were to sign up saying that a particular or designed a a socializing area for students that left out students of color or whatever, you'd say, look, that's outrageous. Well, it's no less outrageous to use, you know, money to build a a hangout area that's only for people who can climb stairs. And it's not news in 2016 or 2010 that people using mobility devices can't climb stairs. Third example, where I teach, Osgoode Hall Law School. I went there 40 years ago, started 40 years ago this month. I was totally blind. I'd only been totally blind for a couple of years. I had low vision before that. Mm. I learned my way around that law school, and I bombed around it using my white cane no problem. 
um, and I was way newer to blindness than I am now. And it was not good on wheelchair access, uh, but they at least it was a building I could navigate. They've since spent a huge chunk of money doing a major renovation of the whole insides of the building. They have improved wheelchair access, and of course they made it gorgeous. Uh, the architects must have been uh, very happy about focusing on visual design. But they've made a building which is now one of the most difficult buildings I have tried to navigate. There's a main, I'll give you one example, I'll, I'll give you two quick examples because they're both glaring. And anybody in the design field should know this. The first is, there's a main corridor on the main, it's like a thoroughfare. Um, think of it like, you know, Young Street in the middle of the main floor. And as you walk down it, we blind folks would use one wall along one side or, or one wall along the other side to navigate. Well, on one side, there's soft seating every couple of meters. I can't navigate that unless I want my cane to whack students' shins as they're sitting and chatting. Along the other wall, which would be a perfect wall to navigate, every couple of meters, there's a pillar. But it's not a pillar to support the ceiling. It's a decorative pillar. It's empty metal. But it's not just an empty metal decorative pillar. They're angled. They don't go straight up and down. They lean into the path of traffic. So the white cane goes under it and says, David, safe to walk. And then your head whacks into it. Now, I don't know what kind of people would design this kind of thing. They mustn't know much about the needs of people with disabilities. And it's, uh, it's a safety issue. And I found out that sighted people whack their heads on it too. Yeah. Okay. All you got to be doing is turning your head to chat or looking down at your, your phone where you're texting. Bottom line, three new buildings built, no doubt, with, with real public money that are lacking in important accessibility features. So the myth, older buildings, they were a problem, but new buildings, don't worry, we get it right. Well, we got to worry. Is, is that a problem with the standards, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the whole idea of the AODA, and we fought for this for a decade. We know this story. Some of the folks in power now don't because they weren't in power then. But the whole idea is that people, there, there were two problems. One is the law didn't tell organizations what they got to do. They want to just be told, tell us what we got to do. So our building code has always been out of date. And when the government refreshed it in 2015, they brought it from the late 19th century to maybe the middle 20th century in terms of currency. But they have not properly updated it. And we don't need, and we were promised a comprehensive built environment accessibility standard, but they haven't delivered that. Mm. And so that's the first problem in terms of this. And the second problem is we're promised effective enforcement so that people with disabilities wouldn't have to litigate these one at a time. A student shouldn't have to sue Ryerson or a patient shouldn't have to sue Women's College Hospital for spending our money to create these barriers. Yeah, it's terribly inefficient. Yeah. So th that's the problem. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't realize that it was uh, it was such a it was a standards problem. I thought it was essentially an, an enforcement problem. No, because you see, organizations out there they don't know what you got to do. Now there are areas where, to their credit, I want to be fair to the government. They got you know they, they take some good steps. So in 2011, they passed regulations requiring website accessibility. Now they put timelines that are too long, but they, they put in a standard that by and large is, is a good standard. There's an international standard for web content accessibility, and by and large, they got it right. There's, there's stuff I quibble with, but I let's just treat it as it's good. But the problem is the timelines are too long and the enforcement isn't good enough. But at least organizations that want to do the right thing, at least there's somewhere to look to and find out what have I got to do. But when it comes to those counter heights or the playgrounds, they leave it to wishy-washy, you know, mm -hmm. accessible height, but we won't tell you what it is. 
accessible playground features. We won't tell you what they are. Accessible key, electronic kiosk features, but we won't tell you what those uh, are going to be. You, you go figure it out and then hope you get it right. Yeah. It's great for consultants, but not for businesses or, or obligated organizations or people with disabilities. And, uh, and by the way, some of my best friends are consultants, so I'm not trying to pick, <laughs> on, I'm not trying to pick on consultants. And there's some people out there doing uh, accessibility consulting or trying to do a good thing, trying to do what they can. They, have, they voice to us the same frustration. Mm. That organizations just want to know what they got to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And then there's effective enforcement. Once you have a clear standard, people have to know that if they don't obey the law, there are going to be consequences. Right. That moves me to something, uh, a little bit of a shift here, is I'm just wondering about, uh, you know, you may have heard about the, I'm sure you have heard, and probably know a lot more about it than me, about the uh, the problems with Uber in New York and the, the taxis, uh, the 50% of the yellow cabs are, are meant to be accessible by... 2020, and there's no such laws for Uber. Other sharing economy things like uh, Airbnb, right? How is the sharing economy going to fit in with accessibility? Okay, th- uh, let, let's start with the baseline, okay? Sure. Uh, the baseline is we need accessible transit. Let's talk about Uber and transit first. Right. right. And then let's talk about hotels and restaurants. We need accessible transit, and the government agrees. So in 2006 or whatever, they appointed a transportation accessibility standard. Credit to them for doing it. Unfortunately, it was dominated by the transit sector, which is, I found, among the most recalcitrant on accessibility of any sector I've dealt with, which is amazing. I'm talking about the public transportation sector. We're talking about municipalities or municipally-related agencies. In our experience, they are among the most recalcitrant. The standards they set, while somewhat helpful, don't go anywhere near as far as um, we need. And in the area of taxis, we said, hey, could you set a standard that says... Uh, what an accessible cab will look like, what features it needs to include, and by when uh, we need to have sufficient a fleet of accessible cabs. That's the way the AODA is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Well, the government didn't do either. They put in a little bit, but what they did is they said that it was up to each municipality to decide what level of accessible cabs they need. Last time I checked, uh, have mobility difficulties or whatever, whether you're in Kenora or Dryden or Toronto or Kingston or Cornwall, um, you need to be able to get in a cab. They've left it to each municipality to figure out what the standards are going to be and what the level of compliance is going to be. This is where the government gave us 20 years in 2005 to reach full accessibility so that you could phase this in over 20 years. If you just said, look, every old car going off the road, fine, we don't ask you to retrofit them, but the new cars coming on, Let's make sure they meet accessibility features and so on. You could, you could make some real progress over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they haven't done that. So it's patchwork, and they leave it to people with disabilities have to still fight this every, each municipality one at a time, which is wrong. So that's before you get to the sharing economy. And then when you get to the sharing economy, you get into having to now refight the same battle I'm not close in on the details. I know they announced some new service where they're going to have accessible vehicles. And I've heard some from the disability community say, hey, listen, that's better than what we're getting from the mainstream. <laughs> and I, I completely understand that mentality. But we need rules that apply to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let me tell you about hotels and stuff like that. So we have a problem here, which is that what I've found is to the extent we get accessibility here, it's thanks to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So in other words, American chains that operate here you're more likely to find they have Braille on the room numbers for and Braille on the elevators 
not because our law is, uh, our government's been telling them to do it, but because Congress was. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Congress <laughs> of the U.S., for doing more on accessibility uh, over the years than, than governments in, in Canada have historically done. So the government, to its credit, back in 2005, said we're going to develop and enact a customer service accessibility standard to deal with all organizations that provide customer service. And that was a great idea. And it was their idea, not ours, by the way, and totally a really good idea. Unfortunately, what they passed was really, really, really weak. But also, when they, after they passed it, it's one of the examples, a leading example, where they've done a really paltry job of enforcing it. And they know, the government knows, we got their records, we made them public, the government knows that there's rampant noncompliance in the private sector with organizations over 25. So what happens? After five years, the government was required to review it, see where they need to improve it. They didn't improve it really in any significant way, but what they did was weaken it. They took a weak standard, made it even worse. And the premier, by the way, promised us that she would never weaken gains we made in or under the Disabilities Act. She has categorically broken her word uh, on this. This is all on our website. Everything I'm telling you uh, on this point, you could go to aodaalliance.org, go to the What's New link, you can see the whole story. But we asked them to approve it. We said, hey, can you put in some basic things like Braille on the, on the bathroom signs? And it's just not about blind people and Braille users, but what could be simpler? They refused. Okay, thanks, David. So how can listeners get involved? How can they promote okay, this? Okay, this is a grassroots movement, okay? And our strength is the folks out there who take part. So how do you get involved? Well, if you want to learn more, as I mentioned before, go to our website, aodaalliance.org. We send out regular email updates that give you the background, the history, what's new. We also seek your input and advice and give you action tips. If you want to get our email updates, all you got to do is write an email address. I'm going to give you, and in the subject line or in the body of it, just write the words, sign me up. That's all you got to say. Nothing fancier than that. The email address is aodafeedback, with no dots, aodafeedback at gmail.com. And just say, sign me up. We'll put you on our email list, and we will give you lots of ideas. Now, so, I'm going to warn you, some of our updates get long, but they're written for people who don't want to read a long update. So what you'll see is there's a subject line or a headline. Maybe that's all you want to read. Just read that headline and then move along. We then give a summary. We give you kind of an overview. But for people who want the real background, all the details, the documents we're referring to to support our claims, because we make it, we're careful to show that we're not making this stuff up, the letters from the government or the articles in the newspaper, that's at the bottom of the updates. So the next way to get involved is um, Twitter. We are very active on Twitter. We're trying to be like a news source on accessibility here and around the world. We tell you bad news and good news. So follow at AODA Alliance. You may also want to follow me because that's what I tweet about, which is at David Lepofsky, D-A-V-I-D-L-E-P-O-F-S-K-Y. The third thing is, uh, the, the only thing I'll tell you is that we, we're part of a national movement also. Everything I've talked about here is about accessibility in Ontario, but to the credit of the Justin Trudeau liberals, again, we're not partisan, in the last federal election, he promised to develop a Canadians with Disabilities Act. The U.S. passed the Americans with Disabilities Act 26 years ago, and it's time for Canada to play catch up. And our prime minister, to his credit, promised he would do so, as did the NDP as did the Green Party in the last election. He's appointed a new minister, Carla Qualtrough, to be Canada's first ever minister uh, for people with disabilities. She is holding a major national consultation on this. And you can get involved. 
website. We've got a coalition called Barrier Free Canada, and AODA Alliance is our the provincial affiliate. You go to barrierfreecanada.org, and there's also our, our Twitter handle is at barrierfreeca, and you can learn more and get involved and find out how to get involved in the national consultation. And it's not a question of needing a national act but not provincial acts or provincial acts but not a national act. The way our constitution works, some stuff is federal like airlines and the post office and banking, and some stuff is provincial like hospitals and schools and uh, municipal public transit. We need legislative action on both. And we are, uh, I chair the AODA Alliance, I co-chair Barrier Free Canada, uh, and we have supporters around Ontario and indeed for Barrier Free Canada across Canada helping out with this cause. I'd like to thank David Lepofsky for coming in today and giving us an overview of the state of AODA implementation in Ontario. Thanks again, David. My name is Richard Hunt, and this is the Quantization Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information, please check our website, quantization.ca. Next episode, Audrey Hudson talks to Robin Kingsberg about color. We want to thank all who support us. And a special thank to Marshall Bureau, who composed all the scores for quantization. Podcast.